Welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's not often that I get an opportunity to speak directly to God, and now you do as well. Uh, we're speaking <laughs> with Mark Harelik, who's a wonderful actor. You've seen him everywhere, uh, from 42 to Kimmy's, uh, Kimmy Schmitz to uh, Seinfeld and everything in between on stage and on screen. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome Mark to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, uh, y yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sprinkled everywhere like salt and pepper. Uh, I, I'm generally not the meat, fish, or chicken, but uh, I'm the spice that makes it edible. Listen, and, and that's the type of a career that I always aspired to. It's the, <laughs> it's the interesting roles and ability to be on wonderful sets with incredible people and to truly yeah yeah and, and to really just get a chance to play and that's, that's yeah well. yeah yeah but, i i once i once uh, i'm going to preempt a question of yours with an observation just pertinent to this yeah. uh uh i i at uh where were we um annette benning and i mm -hmm. were doing um a reading together, a two actor reading uh, as a fundraiser for the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. We're both alums of the American Conservatory Theater. And so uh, uh, there I am, a working actor, with my friend and also major star, Annette Benning. And um, we do this fundraising performance. It goes very well. And uh, we're meeting later with uh, members of their acting class. They have a pro professional actors training program uh, similar to Juilliard, I would say. And, and uh, we were talking to them about the working life in the theater. And, and, uh, and I observed to them that they have before them two very contrasting examples of working actors. Two actors that work all the time. One who is a star and one who you possibly recognize, but you may think is your dentist or uh, the guy you run into at the grocery store all the time. And I say, these are two versions of two viable careers that you could have as an actor. One as the result of phenomenal talent, the woman seated to my left, and the other as, uh, as a result of dogged determination and just being, being present, uh, uh, which is, which is uh, my path. And, uh, and I said, you can be uh, a working actor in either of these categories. Yeah. Well, uh, Annette is wonderful. She's, she's one of my favorite actresses. Um, I, I still, <clears throat> in, in this time in our, in our uh, country's uh, uh, present, I, I go and I rewatch The West Wing and I go and rewatch The American President. So Annette uh, yeah. is, is yeah. very much in my, in my you know, kind of thoughts uh, as to what, um, you know what, we're, we're gonna skip that political discussion, but I, I like her. Okay, all right. But, but let's not forget also the report in which she plays Diane Feinstein. It's, it was great. Uh, that's true. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Uh, fantastic movie. It's, yeah, yeah. I, Annette is, uh, again, just, you know, on Annette for a second, is an uh, actress that, and I think the first time I saw her was in, uh, in Bugsy, um, where somebody who could be really, really uh, small, and so talented in just a, a tiny gesture. Yeah. Uh, it, it was yeah. really, really nice to watch. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's really what we all aspire to that that yeah. that size on film. And for she grew up in the theater and was trained in the theater. And to to see a theater actor transition to that size of of acting is uh, it's it's witnessing a remarkable skill in action. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to do. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I my my example of. Uh, of an actor whose name escapes me at the moment, but will come to me in a second. Um, uh, great uh, theatrical actor uh, who I watched in Bridge of Spies with uh, with Tom Hanks um, and Mark Mark Rylance Rylance yeah. yeah and uh, the probably the thirty seconds or the first thirty seconds or the first minute that I watched of him work, I said, if he doesn't win an Oscar, I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. Of, how he's able to portray an enormity of emotions and uh, circumstances and being so, so still. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're on the set, when you're on the set with, uh, w with actors, the quality of Mark Rylance and with that kind of technique, um, you can be standing, you can be in a scene opposite them, two feet away, three feet away, Mm -hmm. And actively being, uh, have to, having the thought, they're doing absolutely nothing. That person is at doing absolutely nothing. This is the most boring thing I've ever seen. I don't see anything being communicated. But the lens goes right through the face, inside. And uh, you see this whole active inner world. Yeah. You know, the stage actor has the stage actor has the task of of um, enlivening that inner world and projecting it forward. Yep. And when you make the transition from stage to film, you enliven that inner world and actually suck in that projection. You retract it all. And it's the retraction that's arresting. Yeah. One of the one of the. Uh, one of the least favorable compliments I ever received from a director on film is that said, you know, Mark, when you're acting, the amazing thing is that I always, no matter whether you're talking or not, I always know exactly what you're thinking. And inside I thought, oh shit, really? Yeah. No mystery whatsoever? No De Niro mystery, no Mark Rylance mystery. So it was intended as a compliment, and uh, and I, I really took it the wrong way and pouted for many days about it. And and how did you come out of that? I'll try to be less expressive in this interview. <laughs> please do, please do. Uh, how did you uh, how did you uh, come out of that type of a compliment and? Uh, how did it affect you as an actor moving forward? I, I would like to go back and do another take on everything I've ever shot. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the advantage with, uh, of working on stage is that you can go back in the next night and, and keep tinkering, keep reapproaching. It's much more like doing your own scientific peer review. Uh, you put out a hypothesis and you come in, you test it, you question it, you can come in from uh, another angle. For the sake of spontaneity, you can deliberately move to another line of attack. Uh, on film, you can't do that. 
uh, if you're given if you're given uh, a number of takes, uh, say if you're working quickly in television, maybe you get, you know, if the director's generous, you get five to eight takes. Mm -hmm. And so the thing you strive to do, the first three takes are lost because you're just kind of finding what the center line is. Yeah. Then takes five, six, seven, and eight, four, five, six, seven, eight, are trying to do what you would do on five subsequent nights on stage, come in from a different direction, and still trying to match where the hand is on the coffee cup so that the editor can use that take. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, your that take is useless. So you have to repeat that. You have to hit the marks, but come in from a different direction. And it's immensely compressed and very complicated to do and and the the higher the budget the movie is and the larger your role is the more takes you can get that's where you get 15 takes 20 takes and you finally reach a point of exhaustion do nothing and the director says that's the take i was looking for but uh, you know the types of roles that i usually get are supporting or expositionary, which are para-supporting. And I usually have to work fairly quickly. I usually have to work within three to five takes. And so I just gotta be ready and uh, um, do a lot of preparing and then uh, perform with no thought whatsoever. It's a it's a it's a fun challenge. It's a very fun challenge. So the the last part, uh, well, the, right before the uh, the uh, challenge, uh, performing with no thought whatsoever. That's that's the part that took me quite a while to get to. Um, what I, I just want to kind of dive into uh, to your part of the process. I'm doing that because once I was able to get out of my head, I actually started being present. Um, how did you? Yeah. How did you come to that? Well, I started out as a uh, as a pianist. Mm -hmm. um, I went to college. Uh, uh, I, I had won some junior level uh, concert piano contests, and I had a very good teacher in high school. And I auditioned for um, the music department at the University of Texas. I don't remember who the the piano teacher was at the time, but it was someone of note that I had to audition for. I was accepted and um, I was heading in that direction. Um, there are, the, 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 the standard that, that we were working for at that time was Vladimir Horowitz. Horowitz was known for, on all of his recording, for a phenomenal number of mistakes you'd hear his fingers hit two notes at the same time. You would hear him do a, a, a fantastic arpeggio and uh, hit accidental sharps on the way. And uh, uh, the, the hyper technicians in my class would criticize him for that. But the teacher says, no, what he has done, he's studied the material, he's formed the material, he's memorized the material, and then he lets go. And he's driven only by emotion. 
And so he's not thinking about finger placement. He's not thinking about uh, um, structure of interpretation. All of that has been rehearsed and prepared. And what he's doing in performance is just firing himself out of the starting gate and, and uh, perhaps in some cases flailing. And you, you hear uh, um, mistimings from occasionally, mostly it's just wrong notes. Uh, and, and what predominates is the emotional life of his work. So translate that to acting, which became my guiding principle, is you learn your words, you study your character, you, you let your study of the character um, um, modulate your interpretation of it, and then you forget all of that. And you start speaking with a blank mind. And uh, the people who are uh, adept enough at making an end run around this use something like this. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, Brando, uh, Joe Pantaleone, um, mm, several other actors who I can't think of at the moment, uh, get their lines, they don't memorize their lines, they get their lines fed to them from off camera mm -hmm. as they're feeling whatever they're feeling and they just feed those words into the emotion. I just don't have the facility to do that. My brain doesn't work that fast. But uh, that's the idea. Uh, uh, but gymnasts do that. Um, Olympic divers do that. They're not thinking about how their body is turning. Yeah. They, that's already been ingrained. They just follow whatever the, I guess there is an emotion to um, a double axle. Must be. Uh, but, but, uh, but in acting, that's what you strive to do. Otherwise, you're not present tense. You're presenting uh, an imitation of a performance. You're presenting, uh, here's my idea of a performance. And we know as viewers, when we watch actors, or even when we listen to musicians, you can hear the difference. You can see the difference between somebody who is present and the camera is capturing a moment in time, uh, or a, a, a flow of emotions in time, or somebody who is creating something for you. And the someone who is creating something for you um, is not going to move you very much. You may appreciate their technique. Um, Olivier kind of trod that line. Uh, you could see his mind at work. You could see him deciding that this is the image he wanted to deliver to you, but somehow he was able to uh, engage his emotions at the same time. But really, really, watching critically, you could see that there's a little barrier of thought between him and the camera or him and the viewer. And he was known for... Um, stage fright and stage fright is a result of that consciousness yeah. that i'm thinking i'm being watched right now and i have to present something oh no oh no what if i fuck up yeah. what if i say something wrong what if i forget everything and then his mind would go blank
Yeah, it's it's such a tricky, wonderful thing uh, that that we're attempting to do. I I remember uh, this is not acting, but it's apropos. I remember taking a, a mediumship class. Uh, so mediumship is say that again. Mediumship, mediumship, uh, mediumship is the uh, what some believe, uh, some don't. Uh, it's the ability to speak to those in uh, that are no longer on this uh, physical plane. Oh, I, yes, 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 yes. I understand. Oh, right. I, right. I I have some you know uh, some abilities as an intuitive, and I I wanted to explore. So I took a mediumship mediumship class, and a mediumship class. Um, it was a really intense workshop with somebody who's a Elisa Williams is uh, is the medium. She's a you know professional. She's been traveling around the world, uh, you know, not lately, but uh, doing these types of readings in front of uh, you know thousands of people. And I remember being put in situations all the time where you're supposed to do something, and all of the eyes are on you, and there are no lines. You have no idea what it is, and all you can do is empty your mind and be receptive to whatever information flows and then trust enough not to judge any of it and just say it and you know kind of connect and i had instances where she would literally bring people off the off the street and they would uh line them up and then they would bring us into the room and we have 30 seconds to go person to person to person to person to person and tell them what it is that we're feeling. Connect, tell, move on. You have no time for anything else. And the stuff that comes into your mind, if you start questioning or interpreting it, you're, you're done, you're lost, the connection is gone. And I was saying things that I would not believe myself, but they were, they were real which made me again you know more receptive to uh to something like this being uh being uh, real but i try to uh to kind of take that feeling of i'm empty and i'm just going to see what comes and if you've done your homework and you know your lines those lines are going to come at the right moment when you as the character is supposed to say them so it's a scary thing to do but when you get in the habit of, of doing it and just trusting it, it becomes a lot better so what you did was put yourself into a place of total isolation yeah. between you and the subject you were totally isolated which means you had no objective eye on you you didn't have your own objective eye and you had nobody else's objective eye uh, the same thing you get if you're uh, out walking a trail alone in the woods. Yeah. You sort of forget that uh, all about objective eye because you don't need an objective eye. There's nobody looking at you. There's a, there's a, uh, um, a Taoist uh, saying, which I will um, uh, misquote, but the sense of it is uh, the bowman working on his own hits the center every time the bowman competing for the silver medal is off the target. The bowman competing for the gold cup misses the target entirely. And all of that has to do with the objective stakes that you bring into your situation. And, and the, the fantastic um, 
either irony or paradox about acting is that acting is always public, but it is completely private. You are never in a greater state of isolation than you are when you're in public acting. And the, the, we're taught, those of us who come up into the theater, to listen to the pitch of the room, to act for the person in the back row, as well as the front row in order to expand out into the room. And there, there's even a way of doing that in a state of total uh, isolation. Uh, I find that, do I really think this? Yes, I do. <laughs> I, I find that uh, achieving that state of isolation uh, sometimes can be achieved mm, with a meditative frame of mind, and sometimes it can be achieved with an arrogant frame of mind, uh, sort of a necessary arrogance uh, that is required when you're standing up on a stage and you're essentially saying, everybody shut up and listen to me. Everybody look at me. Everybody be in the dark, all the lights on me. Everybody shut up, look this way and listen to me. And that, there's a better word than arrogance, but I can't think of it at the, at the moment. But it, it's a, it, maybe it's sort of a meditative arrogance where you are able to isolate yourself, remove the objective view of the audience because in a state of arrogance, you don't care. You don't give a shit. Right. Uh, um, you know, a lot of actors are aided by a very handy personality disorder that allows them not to give a shit about what anybody else thinks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, others of us uh, have to achieve it by some means, but it's a state of isolation. Yeah. Um, the, the actors uh, who you have worked with without naming names, because that's irrelevant, but the actors who have that healthy, um, not give a shit mentality, is that a Puran mentality? Or do they really not give a shit? Because it would seem to me like some of them may portray it, but are very sensitive to the opinions of others uh, in reality. Oh, I think very sensitive to the opinions of others. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I, I think that I, I think that we uh, we know people, we know um, you know stars and celebrities, stars and celebrities. But but I think we've all witnessed people who um, uh, aggressively don't give a shit because they're so easily wounded by what other people think or say. Yeah. And there are uh, other people who are truly able to um, turn off their focus on what other people say. Uh, um, in a form of insisting on it, uh, um, I think one one instance that I can that I can attest to is uh, uh, John Turturro, who uh, uh, on one project had to wait in his room, his trailer, for a long time when his scene was next. Mm -hmm. And the the uh, the photographer, the director, the the all of the gaffers. It took a long time to set up the lighting, long time very specific lighting, very tight lighting, uh, camera movement, very involved. 
so he waited. He was in his trailer. Uh, you're preparing. You're trying to stay neutral. You're trying, trying to stay energy. Uh, um, so you time your banana. You time your ca caffeine so that you're ready. He's called to the set. He does one take. Then the, then the, uh, the photographer says, uh, uh, excuse me, John, give us just a few minutes. Uh, I, I want to move this light over here. And John says, no, this is my time. You had two hours to set up the lighting that you want. I spent my time getting ready. I am ready. I'm focused. This is my time. This is not your time anymore. So someone watching from the outside says, what an asshole. He's really not cooperating with the setting up of, of, of this shot. But if you look at it from his point of view, I had to isolate myself from the lights, from the lens, from the all of the gaffers standing off screen that are not really part of my reality. I had to isolate myself so that I can forget that we're in an artificial situation. And here you're bringing me back into an artificial situation. So... I, I saw that as a productive arrogance, as a, as a necessary arrogance. Someone in my position, if I'm coming in as a... Uh, 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 a guest star, yes. Yeah, a guest star, yes, yes. I'm doing a week in a storyline. If I start insisting on that, uh, um, you know, I'm, no, I'm not going to be replaced, but I won't come back to that show again, yeah. you know. I agree. Don't hire Mark Harlick. He's a problem. He thinks he's John Turturro. <laughs> well, um, both, in my opinion, both are highly talented. Uh, and listen, you know, uh, I'm sure that uh, given the fact that you've uh, you've reached uh, and uh, exceeded the 100 mark of, uh, of projects and uh, credits on IMDb Pro, um, you're doing well. And I, and I think people have a positive opinion of your work. So, right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm still trying to achieve the Malcolm Gladwell uh, uh, benchmark, which is 10,000. Right. Repetition of 10,000. Keep, keep, uh, keep striving. <laughs> I think if we count from junior high school on, uh, I may have, uh, I may have done that. Yes. And the amount of times I lied to my parents thinking, this is a really good lie. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, again, everything prepares you for the craft, so uh, we can count it. Um, <laughs> I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned a little earlier, which is when you're working in a scene with somebody like Mark Rylance, and they are so small, and then you as a scene partner uh, may not be getting anything uh, that you need to work with. So my approach, and again, what I find helps me as a, as a performer is to be really connected to the other person because you know their uh, their body language their reactions their emotions things that i'm able to pick up on are things that help me uh, be properly uh, grounded in that moment so i i have never been in uh, in a scene with somebody as you know great as mark but from an actor perspective who's opposite of him is it helpful is it a hindrance how do you go about it well, I, I, I was, yes, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think I misspoke myself. The, the, um, when you're doing a scene three feet away and you're thinking to yourself, he's doing absolutely nothing. I don't see what the performance is. 
that's because you're coming with performative expectations. Okay. But but exactly as you say, the the you you connect with them eye to I mean, if you're if you're uh, if you're deaf, you can see eyes and face. If you're blind, you can hear uh, breath and words. Mm-hmm. So you you connect in the same way as you would connect with somebody across your dinner table. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you're if you're speaking with somebody across your dinner table who's in a in a state of extreme reticence or uh, a state of being closed off, that emanates as much into the room as shouts and laughter does. It has the same vivid emanation. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, it, it requires um, uh, uh, full attention, listening, and empathy. And uh, if you have an open, empathetic channel, you can hear all of that. You can see all of that. You can you can see and hear the invisible, and and the uh, um, the the empathetic channel is 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 primary. It, it's the you get to the empathetic channel by achieving that state of isolation that we were first talking about. But the isolation is not a vacuum. Now the isolation something has some medium has to flow back and forth. Mediumship. Uh, um, has to flow back and forth, and that's empathy, which is you know the very simple biological method of I have mirror cells in my brain that know what you're thinking. I'm mirroring what I think you're thinking, and so we're we're sharing a thought line. We're sharing a a a a. Um, a heart line to use crayon colors about it. But uh, um, if you don't have empathy, uh, you can't listen, you can't hear, you can't see. And so you have to do a, um, what I call a mirror performance. You practice in front of the mirror, you get it the way you like, and then you deliver that performance. A lot of great actors doing that, especially on Broadway. you have to. It's defensive acting, defensive against your uh, your actor opponents and defensive against your uh, director opponents. But uh, on camera, um, simple, genuine empathy can get you anywhere you need to go, which is the only purpose for art at all. It's the only purpose of acting is to achieve empathy between this final product and the viewer. And if you don't achieve empathy, I mean, even broad comedy has has a line of empathy to it. Uh, uh, Watching James Corden's performance in in, uh, One Man, Two Governors, uh, uh, the broadest kind of farcical comedy, and yet you empathize with the plight of this character because he's feeling it genuinely while he's rolling around on the floor strangling himself. Yeah. Haven't seen it, but that sounds like something that I would enjoy. Um, not the person rolling on the ground trying to strangle themselves, but the the empathetic performance of it. Um, so given that, again, you have such a breadth of um, sets and experiences uh, in drama and comedy, uh, were there any that stand out to you as those from which you uh, grew as an actor? 
Yeah. Uh, um, one of them was uh, working with Alexander Payne and Matthew Broderick in uh, the film Election. Um, Alexander Payne uh, didn't do a lot of direction, but he did a great deal of, of observing. And uh, his, his most consistent direction was uh, do a little bit less, do a little bit less. So, so he was, he was uh, helping us to work toward um, a non-performative performance. And uh, he was also opening the field wide for I'm only interested in what you have to offer. I'm not really interested that this is, he didn't say this, but his, his on set uh, aesthetic seemed to be, um, I'm only interested in what comes out of you at this moment. I'm not really interested in anything you've prepared. I'm interested in what happens in this moment. And so, really didn't give a lot of direction. Uh, uh, if you wanted a specific action or, or event to occur, of course, you know, you have to do that and those are your parameters. But uh, it really, uh, not that it was anything revelatory, but as a director, he really helped me uh, stay on that um, focus of, uh, listening, reacting, and being on a spontaneous channel. And I will say the same thing about Matthew Broderick, uh, uh, because Matthew is, um, I found him to be uh, incredibly friendly and also incredibly neutral, uh, uh, incredibly noncommittal. And so this kind of both person slash actor, you also have to tune in and observe and listen to very carefully. Uh, it's not as though they're putting a lot out at you that you react to as though it's hitting you. You have to reach in for something to react to. And uh, I just loved it. I, I, I um, liked being challenged in that way, both of which were inviting me to come in, to lean in, to listen in, to look in, and uh, not having to fend off and dodge and react to, which is also another way of, you know, dancing with, dancing with a scene partner. But this was, I suppose, dancing in the listening sense. So um, uh, I can think of that. Uh, another one was, uh, was uh, I, did, I did one role on, uh, with Jerry Seinfeld on, on his show Seinfeld. And uh, strangely, he he reminded me a lot of Matthew Broderick in that sense that you don't really know what he's thinking. Uh, uh, he has a very pleasant neutral aspect and his neutral aspect is both inviting and critical at the same time, which is sort of the essence of his comedy. He's both participating and uh, he, he, he's, He's joyfully participating and disdainfully scorning all at the same time. And it, it, it resides on this neutral plane. And I found it just fascinating to work with. And uh, um, 
it, it allowed my character to uh, misinterpret Jerry uh, just as freely as I was able to interpret him. And so the, the, the thing I learned is that I can interpret Jerry in a variety of ways and they were all correct. So uh, it gave my character a great deal of uh, freedom to go into the preposterous, uh, to go into the, mm, I know what you're thinking, um, which is both fun and, uh, and instructive. That's very interesting. Um, I, obviously I watched uh, Seinfeld and uh, I, I really enjoy it, even though they're all really, really weird, despicable uh, people that I probably would not want to hang out with. Uh, <laughs> including Jerry? Uh, well, including Jerry's- He's suspicious. Story. He's suspicious, you have to admit. Yes, he's very suspicious. Uh, you don't know, if you'll, you never know if he likes you or not. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's, that's the thing that uh, once I started watching uh, Jerry's um, uh, getting uh, comedians uh, getting Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Thank you, that's it. Yeah, yeah, so once, yeah, yeah. Once I started watching that, I really started to understand who Jerry is as, as a person. And I yeah, thought, yeah. that's a really interesting uh, man who is extremely sure of himself, really uh, talented. And uh, if you're not on his level, he probably will not enjoy spending any time with you. Uh, no, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his mind is always on the perimeter of things, yeah. uh, um, on the edge. But his edge is, is goes in three hundred and sixty degrees. Yeah, so it's it was it was fascinating. And by the way, his level—I didn't mean the level of success financially. It's his mental level. Um, I understand. Uh, yeah. Well, for, for the, I agree. I agree. Because uh, he, uh, from that perspective, he doesn't—he's uh, not a big shot. Uh, you know, when people say hi to him, he says hi, you know, he's happy to take, uh, you know, photographs. So he seems to be a very accessible uh, guy from that perspective. Anyway, um, yeah. the, uh, I also found it interesting uh, kind of uh, getting off uh, the, you know, the acting uh, track a bit, but your uh, grandparents, you know, came from where I came from. And, uh, you know, looking at your name, you know, I, I can pronounce it in- the Are you from a shtetl? Uh, not quite, but uh, I, I don't think they had those when I was born, but yes. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting that um, you, uh, you actually created a play that was based on, uh, on your grandfather and your grandmother's experience. I did. I did. I created two plays, actually, that covered two generations. Oh. Uh, um, the, the, my, my, uh, just so everybody will know what we're talking about, uh, my grandparents uh, uh, came from uh, essentially Fiddler on the Roof. If you've seen the movie of Fiddler on the Roof, you've seen the village they grew up in, which is in uh, south, what's now Belarus, mm -hmm. uh, uh, south of Minsk, uh, uh, in, the, in the Jewish Pale of Settlement, mm -hmm. and emigrated to the United States as teenagers. Um, uh, uh, where are you from? Babrusk? Uh, <laughs> Minsk? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm east of that. So I'm uh, oh. eastern part of Ukraine. Ukraine, yes. Okay. But, but in, the, in, the, in the Jewish sense, it's all, it was, it was all in the pale of settlement. Yeah. Um, they settled in uh, uh, because, uh, because of my, uh, 
my grandfather um, was part of an immigration experiment called the Galveston Plan mm -hmm. that routed Russian Jewish immigrants through the port of Galveston. Mm -hmm. And they settled Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, the entire Midwest. Uh, a lot of uh, American Jewish families in the Midwest can trace their roots back to Russia through the port of Galveston. He settled in a small, uh, very small, almost village size, shtetl sized village in central Texas that was, uh, um, in a certain sense, in a virtual sense, all Baptist yeah. and made a life. And, uh, and I grew up in the only Jewish family in a small town in central Texas. So I, did, I wrote a play about my grandparents settling in that small town. And then uh, I wrote another play, which was my grandparents, after my grandparents had passed away, and my father and, and uh, uh, me, as a uh, bar mitzvah boy, are uh, still the only Jewish family in the small town in Texas. And uh, so I performed as uh, I performed in the play as my grandfather and as my father, wow. which was it was it was, uh, it, it was an interesting and moving and fulfilling experience for for me personally. I don't know how other people reacted to it. Must have been. And um, again, in terms of uh, timing, I, I'm, I'm uncertain of this, but did you get to, uh, to know your grandfather? Was he alive? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were a three generation household. So yeah. I would, I would, uh, uh, he would tell stories about uh, um, when Sholem Aleichem would come through his village and tell stories standing in the back of his horse drawn wagon. Wow and uh, um, entertain in the town square. Uh, and this would had to have been shortly before, because I know that uh, I know that Sholem Aleichem fled to, he fled that region for, where did he go? Where did he go? I'm not sure. Paris, London? I really don't remember. Uh, um, New York? I don't remember, but he left. Uh, so this was in, this was in the 1890s yeah. that my, my grandfather would have. So he told stories about Sholem Aleichem. Can you believe it? And then, uh, and then Fiddler on the Roof is set exactly in the time frame when Tevya leaves Anatevka was right at the time when my grandfather left his Anatevka and uh, went to rural Texas instead of, I think New York. Tevye was going to Chicago. Oh, he was okay. I, I, cousin, cousin in Chicago. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. I again, you know, being being Jewish, uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Still, anytime I watch it now, I made my kids watch it. But watching Fiddler on the Roof, it's it's yeah, it's it's always hard and heartwarming at the same time. Um, it is. It is. It is a it, the the film uh, uh, gives such a from what I can tell from my research right. gives uh, such an accurate representation of life in a life in a shtetl. And uh, you know, you, you and I, being Jewish, can can say to our children, "Look, this is where your grandfather grew up. He walked in that muddy street. 
he had to draw water from that well by turning that crank. Mm. And um, I, I remember again, you know, my my parents are older. My parents are in their 80s. Uh, so, but their their parents, you know, there was a time when the Jews weren't allowed to live in the big city. So yeah. the, the big town that we lived in uh, in uh, in Ukraine was one of the largest uh, cities, kind of thing between Detroit and Boston combined. Um, mm -hmm. But all of the Jews for maybe you know, 30, 40 years before that, maybe a little bit more than that, they weren't allowed to live in the big city. So they yeah. had to live in those small villages. So it was definitely you know, very appropriate representation. And uh, uh, I keep coming back to that, to that uh, film and thinking, oh my God, of what happened to Poland uh, to his, uh, his daughter uh, yeah. during the World War. So Anyway, but, um, I'm I'm glad that uh, that your grandparents uh, made it and they left before everything uh, went uh, berserk. That's nice to hear. The 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 I often in the in wondering why it is that my my grandfather chose to live in a small rural town in Texas mm -hmm. uh, rather than go to a big city that was that was her. My son is yeah. shaking my hand. Hello. Yeah. Uh, come and say hello. Come say hello. This is Alan. This is my son. D d bow oh, down. Nice to meet you. He's he's named after his great grandfather Haskell. I saw that. That's that's very sweet. <laughs> uh, by the way, my uh, father's name is Mark. <laughs> oh, really? Crazy, crazy. Uh, uh, um, the, the, the reason that my grandfather chose to live in a small rural town may have had something to do with his uh, um, lack of ease in a big city. Yeah, it certainly could have been because it's, that's, that's what they, uh, they, they remember. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, such a, it's such a fascinating kind of uh, part of history. And, you know, you know uh, there were, I think there were part of the extended family of ours that left around that same time as your grand uh, grandfather and grandmother. Um, you know, my family stayed. The pogroms around the time of the pogroms. Yeah, yeah, and uh, pogroms were very prominent in in, in Ukraine, and uh, yeah. my family stayed. And that you could see how it, it just completely changed the trajectory of of the family. Where yeah. my mother, who uh, we immigrated to the United States in '89, uh, we were supposed to leave in 79, but then the border closed for 10 years. So in 89, we, uh, you, you weren't at that time flying directly to, uh, from you know, Kiev or Moscow to uh, the United States. You had to go through an immigration process in Austria, then Italy, then the United States, uh, if they let you go. And many people ended up staying in Italy for months and months because they weren't allowed to go. So point of the story is, is my parents in their 50s uh, and you know me as a 14 year old kid we two hour flight from kiev to austria to vienna um we get out and it's a completely different world we it's a different to, century it's a different century we go to uh, <laughs> we go to wash our hands in the in the bathroom and we can't figure it out because there's nothing to twist uh my mother goes in vienna to a small grocery store think you know, 7-Eleven size uh, here, maybe a little bigger. And she breaks down and starts crying because 
you want meats and you want cheeses and you want bread and everything is there instead of having to wait in line. And she basically said, what did they do to us and our families for 70 years? Uh, and it was, it was hard to watch. And even when I was- This is what happens. Sorry, sorry, no, go ahead, please. I was just, uh, even when I was older, um, my wife and I visited uh, Germany. And uh, being in a small, uh, being in a, you know, not a small city, but a smaller city in Germany, and kind of seeing things that reminded me of Ukraine, and I thought, well, this is what it should have been like. Uh, it was yeah. Dusseldorf, I think, was the city. This is what it should have been like, and it would have been normal, but that's what it was uh, yeah. back in Ukraine, yeah. and it never made it that way. It was just, it was very, yeah. very hard to uh, we we hear that we hear those same stories from defectors from north korea yeah they they're uh, and they've been taught that they are the wealthiest country in the world and suddenly they go into a supermarket in seoul yeah and are stunned stunned um yeah even have you been back to your home uh, no. Well, first of all, there's no home, right? Uh, at that time, when, right. we were, when we were leaving, you hand in your passport because you're no longer a citizen of the country and they, right. they don't right. want you to do that. So right. there was nobody there because everybody left and they moved to Israel or they moved to the United States. So there's pretty much nobody there. So I, when, I, when I grew up and I saw you know, uh, people from Poland, people from Bulgaria, people from Italy and, and uh, Greece, they would in the summer go back and uh, visit their relatives in different countries. We never had that option. So you kind of, you, you became a person with no country. You're no longer yeah. a citizen of one and it's going to take you five to six years to become a citizen of another. <laughs> so it's, yeah. that whole yeah. at, at one point I'll write a book about it, but it's. Do you, do you, speak, do you still speak Ukrainian? Uh, the, the parts uh, of uh, Ukraine that I'm from, uh, we're Russian, yeah. Russian speaking. Yeah, it, it was uh, yeah. mostly Russian speaking. So Russian was the native language. Ukrainian was a language that we learned in school. And I was fluent in Ukrainian. But since leaving Ukraine in 1989, that language goes away. So Russian, we still, uh, we still speak. Uh, we uh, made sure that our children you know, learn Russian uh, to preserve that part of their heritage. But uh, Ukrainian is a language that my wife understands really well. I can hear it and I understand 60 to 70% of it. I can read it and understand pretty much everything, but if do, you speak it, forget it. Do you speak Russian with an American accent? Uh, I do now. It's, it's really funny because I had to do some roles uh, where you know, I was asked to be a Russian speaking uh, person. And the question is, um, I, I really <laughs> need to make sure because there are a plethora of Russian accents. You know, depending on where you're from, there are all sorts of accents. So, Number one, which one of those do I take that you know befits the character? Yeah, yeah. How do I make sure that it's authentic? Because my uh, American, uh, you know, pronunciation and dialects is starting to come through. So it's, you know, it's so Alan, you don't have a, you don't, you don't speak any, you don't have a native accent. Uh, apparently not. Yeah. yeah. It's it's fascinating. And uh, you know, when you were talking about your grandfather. I, I began to wonder if, you know, they were speaking Russian or Yiddish uh, at home and if that kind of uh, went through uh, to your generation. They, they spoke Yiddish. They spoke Yiddish at home 
and and uh, uh, we learned a lot of Yiddish expressions, but mostly it was their secret language when they wanted to gossip in front of us. Yeah. So um, we didn't really. Uh, uh, my my uh, my parents were full of Yiddish phrases, and uh, uh, in order to write, I had to write Yiddish dialogue in in my play about them, the immigrant. Yeah. Uh, I wrote it in English and I had it translated, but I learned uh, I relearned a lot of Yiddish while it was being translated. Yeah, I and every single every single Yiddish speaker that I consulted about the translation said, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. And the next translator would say, no, 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 that person doesn't know what they're talking about. And mm. no one could agree. So I, I finally just cut it down the middle. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you, you have a language that, uh, that unfortunately is getting lost. And then you have Jewish people who are offering their opinions on the interpretation of that language. So you're going to have all, all sorts of uh, disagreements. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. As many interpretations as, as, as people. Yeah. Um, listen, Mark, it's, it's, it's such a pleasure speaking with you. I know that we can talk for another two hours and, uh, and find conversations, but I, I, I found myself in a way uh, in two worlds with you, is, is going back into my own history and heritage and getting an acting lesson. Oh, that's, that's cool. I love that. I love that. Uh, uh, I think that's what made it such a, a lovely conversation for me. Thank you, sir. Um, and thanks to everybody for tuning in into another fascinating episode of The Love of Acting. We know you love it as much as we do, and that's why we do this. Thank you.